Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio at 7am on the 855am dial, uh, and you have Jacob and Zane in the studio today. Hello, hello, hello. Alright, um, so before I announce what's coming up in the program, um, I'd like to acknowledge um, that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the wandry land of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and that sovereignty was never ceded, um, and that, you know, it always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hear, hear. Alright, so I guess in terms of um, kind of headline news, um, many listeners have probably heard about um, the Australian Federal Police raids on the Melbourne and Sydney offices of the Australian Workers' Union on October 24th. Um, This was done on apparently on some basis of some Senate inquiry into associated entities, um, basically organisations that are closely associated with um, political parties in which are required to lodge annual returns with the Australian Electoral Commission. They wanted to see if the union had its paperwork in order for a donation made to GetUp 12 years ago. Um, GetUp lawyers have warned that they could be raided next. And, of course... The AEC lists the type of organisers and associated entities, think tanks, registered clubs, service companies, trade unions and corporate party members. And But, you know, as Pip kind of here writes in Green Left Weekly, this is just one way of the coalition trying to clamp down on the unions and campaign organisations such as GetUp by pushing tighter restrictions on their ability to campaign, goes to the, which goes to the heart of this battle over freedom of political expression. Yeah. Do you have any comments, Zane, so far? Yes. Well, when you say associated entities, there's a good article that was going around at the Australian Independent Media Network, or the AIM Network. It's called Get Up vs. IPA, and it highlights that uh, so associated entities um, are determined by the um, Australian Electoral Commission as individuals, groups, or corporations that have to disclose if they're a partisan entity operating wholly or to a significant extent for the benefit of one or more registered political parties. The 2015-16 Associated Entity Summary is an interesting read because whilst it's a veritable who's who of unions and some companies, there are notable omissions. The Australian Bankers Association, the Mineral Councils of, of Australia, the Business Council of Australia, the Australian Hotels Association, the Institute of Public Affairs, the Australian Christian Lobby, the list would be endless, don't get a mention. All of these groups are conservative entities that openly advocate for their members' interests. They're a who's who of... um, uh, They're they're frequently cited in supportive arguments for like-minded conservative governments. 
and yet these groups are not uh, they're not declared as associated entities so on the one hand uh, Erica Betts is wanting to say oh yeah get up as an associated entity we want to see where all their money's coming from well hang on where's the AFP rating the Institute of Public Affairs and telling us where they get their money from mm. where's the AFP rating the Minerals Council of Australia and telling us every cent that's come into there and from whom. Yeah. So the, the hypocrisy is, uh, is tremendous. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's clearly a completely political and, and biased and hypocritical act, these, these raids. Yeah, I think um, in the article here, ACTU Secretary Sally McManus actually summarises the political um, witch hunt of the AUW to the ABC's Send Free, asking, you know, asking this kind of question, you know, what is wrong with workers um, deciding whether they want to donate money to a political campaign because they think it is in their interest? You know, what is wrong with that? That is, you know, called democracy. Mm. Um, and... You know, it shouldn't actually it shouldn't actually be a problem if a if a union you know decides they want it through their membership, um, you know decides to donate money to a campaign um, to uh, a political party like say the Greens, which is or even Get Up, hmm. if they think it's in there, it would advance their interests to do so. Hmm. I mean, it's all over the Get Up um, website. Yeah, just, they probably lean towards Labor or they try and push Labor to the left and they mm. lean towards the Greens. But it's written all over the GetUp website and when they send you emails, yep. we are an independent progressive movement. Yeah. And, of course, there's a question here that needs to be asked, as Pip writes here in Green Left Weekly, if GetUp is classified as a class, as an associated entity of Labor and the Greens... Then that raises the question: What does it say about Murdoch's um, news dot com? Mm. Like that's another one, um, you know, <laughs> which basically uses yeah, it's a, it's a campaign flagship. Every time there's a federal or state election, literally the day before the election or the day of their election, there's a massive front page article: "Kick this mob out, vote for Tony Abbott." Yeah, it's um, it's complete hypocrisy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I might just play a quick announcement. I have a, just a bit of a, a a funny kind of news story, kind of from my personal life, but it's um related to politics. <laughs> mm-hmm. For one night only, the Great Forest National Park is coming alive at Howler, Brunswick, October twenty ninth at seven pm. Celebrate our diverse Victorian wilderness through provoking forest projections and performances by Shane Howard, Zach Sabre and DJ Dillian Page. All proceeds go towards the Wilderness Society's work on the Great Forest National Park campaign. Tickets are just $25 from Moshtix. That's moshtix.com.au. Just search for Howler. So come and enjoy a unique night out and be wilder. Be wilder is a 3CR supporter. This time we'll pass away. This world might not be here to stay. So much. 
Right, you're back on Green Left Weekly Radio. Yeah, so I have a bit of an interesting kind of news story to share and something I think maybe we should share a bit more of this kind of stuff, especially since I am, you know, I'm a big, I play a lot of video games, well, not as much as I used to, but I'm really into kind of like the whole gamer culture. Mm. And this, um, this is quite a funny news story because this has sort of appeared all over the kind of the press in terms of the video game press. Um, it even appeared on the Rolling Stones of all sites. <laughs> Um, but basically, um, I've been posting on a video game discussion board known as Neogaf.com. Um, and it's actually kind of quite well known and quite prominent. It's known as quite one of the biggest gaming discussion boards in um, in the world. Um, and, it's, and it's especially notable for its high level of discussion. Um, and it's discussed simply because it had a closed registration process. Um, and it had a quite a strict moderation process. Had a quite strict moderation policy, which kind of meant you couldn't get away with, you know, saying outright racism and sexism. Of course, as I was going to go um, get into now, the site actually did, there was a culture that was actually quite problematic in terms of, you know, despite how progressive it was compared to other internet discussion boards. Um, it's just been recently found out in like the past week um, that basically a sexual assault allegation was made on publicly on Facebook, although it wasn't. It was based on a private Facebook post that then got spread virally um, towards the owner of the website NeoGaf, um, whose name is Tyler Malik, um, also known as Evil Law on the website. And basically, when this when this kind of sexual assault scandal kind of got spread on the site. Basically, you know, the whole forum imploded and basically a lot of the moderators um, who were moderated the site, you know, couldn't really stand by by this allegation. Uh, he, um, the owner did not make a statement immediately um, and basically all the moderators, a, lot, a number of the moderators went and resigned um, kind of almost in protest because they really just couldn't stand by, you know, what this allegation was. Mm. And then it kind of got even... Um, funnier because basically the site went down for like two to three days and then he released a statement and his statement was basically gaslighting the victim, um, basically taking no responsibility whatsoever for what he had done, which was um, basically what he had done was a kind of non-consensual encounter of, you know, breaking the trust of this woman by entering in into her to the, the sh- while she was in the shower naked which is completely outrageous, mm. took no responsibility for that. And, of course, this whole thing brought up a whole context of his other, some of his other kind of sleazy behaviour that he kind of expressed on the site, mm. um, despite the fact he kind of, you know, positioned himself as a bit of a progressive. And so kind of now basically the site has basically imploded on itself. Um, what was now kind of the biggest kind of gaming discussion forum is now mainly a shadow of its former self. And I guess what's interesting is um, in terms of political trends, you know, kind of the influence of the Me Too campaign is really, because of the climate of the Me Too campaign, Mm. it's really made a lot of people who posted at this uh, internet forum, you know, justifiably kind of outraged. Mm. Um, And, of course, the the majority of the community have all started to migrate to another website, which is called Reset Arrow or something, which I'm also a part of. Um, And, of course... The funny, the interesting thing is um, this site is trying to pride itself a bit on, you know, being more inclusive, um, you know, to having no tolerance for racism, sexism, etc. Um, and it's actually, you know, p- 
pissing off kind of a lot of the the alt kind of right community on the internet. And actually going back track, um, the forum actually came back. Um, so Evil Law brought up the forum back up online. Um, but what had happened was really funny because he basically brought up back up the forum and then said we're we're going to restructure NeoGAF as like a gaming discussion board only. And so basically no politics. You can't discuss politics anymore. There's no off-topic. The only off-topic discussions you can discuss are like, you know, comic books, anime, um, films. You, you, want, you can't discuss everyday news or anything. So basically because of this allegation that came towards him, instead of, I mean, he probably could have just apologised and said he regretted his actions and that he would have, um, he would have reached out to victim and apologise, etc. Was this in a workplace situation? No, it was in a personal situation because the the person um, the person making the accusation was a friend of him of mm-hmm. his. Um, yeah. So it's like yeah. So basically, he went the completely wrong way about it, and basically, yeah, yeah he's restricted um, on the forum. He basically restricted political discussion, which comes off as really bad because it basically means yes, you can talk about anything as long as it has nothing to do with that thing that happened in my personal life mm, that sexual harassment thing. yeah 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 so um and so yeah I've, as justifiably the forum um the community of the forum became were completely outraged this is like completely mm. terrible and um it's now become a bit of a ghost of itself um although what's even interesting is um the whole because of the, of the forum being as big as it is um the owner had actually made quite a uh a big livelihood out of the forum because basically with the Google ads, he could make like thousands of dollars a week off mm. the site. Um, mm. And all he had to do was just basically manage and micromanage and administrate the site. Um, and so basically as a result of this allegation I, uh, and the the complete decline in traffic to the, the forum, mm. um, I, I would say probably his livelihood is pretty much gone, mm. um, and he's and he's he's probably regretting that he didn't sell um, the he was previously offered the site for ten million dollars by a kind of gaming corporation or some kind of publisher um, or some media outlet, and yeah, he refused that deal. So I bet he's kind of regretting that he didn't actually take up that offer a year ago because yeah, he's basically the site is I would say at this point completely unviable. And did you say there's a new sort of site? That's emerging for people that are leaving this other one. Yeah, yeah. So it's called resetair.com mm. and it's it's sort of you can't really register for it right now. It's a bit closed up because the reason for that is basically NeoGAF had a bit of a reputation and it's actually a positive reputation. If you if you amongst the so called alt right, the alt right always saw NeoGAF as like a cesspool of like social justice warriors and because they actually banned people for racist and sexist comments. I mean, maybe some people would say that sometimes they would go too far, but I think it's perfectly fair to, mm. to create a safe space for, you know, for people because for women especially or trans people, they always get so much shit online mm. from in terms of online harassment. So they needs to be. That kind of safe space for for them to be able to discuss video games to be free of harassment. Um, mm. And majority, the reality is, the majority of the internet is not like that. Um, mm. Especially mm. if you go in the cesspools like Reddit and um, 4chan, um, it's just it's just not it's just not there. So I think it's um, it's good that this new site has you know popped up and you know is promising itself to be even more inclusive um, mm. than, than NeoGAF was. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how it uh, came. But yeah, the reason why the registration process closed up is 4chan have already threatened to, you know, try and invade the site and, you know, 
break it down or even threaten to dox, which is reveal personal details of the users on the information. And they've already kind of, funny enough, they've already kind of targeted me because I've posted I posted a bit um, about socialism and socialist politics and they've kind of targeted my post and say, oh yeah, it's a, it's a complete joke that they're accepting someone like this into the site. He's probably going to keep his account, yet someone who is... Um, who supports Trump or didn't vote for Hillary Clinton is probably going to get banned within 24 hours. Although I think more, it's the reality is it's more that someone who voted for Trump can't help themselves and is probably going to say racist within the next 24 hours, and that's why they're going to get banned, not mm. because they voted for mm. Trump. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah, that's a, interesting development. That's a bit of um, funny kind of news from the internet, but, but I do think it does have a bit of significance in a sense. Like, oh, one totally. Of the about- that's, that's a big sort of support base of the alt right. Of yeah. the alt right is like you say, four um, chan and and yeah. some of those online communities. So. Yeah. And um, one of the things about NeoGAF in the past was it was um, anti gamergate, which was like this whole kind of despicable kind of alt right movement within the game culture, which basically was aimed at harassing women um, mm. for even just speaking out about sexism in video games, like all making sexist critique, feminist critiques of video games. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the funny thing is, I ended on this note, um, with the, the restructuring of NeoGAF, the people who are seen to be most happy of it are the kind of people who use terms like, oh, yes, this is great because NeoGAF was so infested with political correctness and social justice worries, which is just basically just like right-wing kind of talk. So basically, the owner of the site has basically just empowered the right wing mm. of this who who um, frequented his site and just you know driven out kind of the progressive minded people who have all gone to this new site anyway. So, mm. oh, interesting developments. Yeah. All right. Anyway, um, I think we'll play a quick announcement and then we'll move on to a twenty minute interview that we have with Dick Nichols on um, the situation in Catalonia. Mm. <laughs> If you love 3CR, then why not support us by setting up a regular donation? You decide how much and how often you donate, and once it's set up, you don't have to think about it. Monthly, weekly, annually, you decide, and there's no minimum amount. Your donation is also 100% tax deductible, and you can claim the entire amount back via your tax return, knowing you are directly diverting Commonwealth funds to keeping your favourite station operating. It's the easiest way to grow 3CR. So if this works for you, sign up. Go to 3cr.org.au slash donate or call the station on 9419 8377. you Welcome to 3CI and thank you for offering to speak to us again. My pleasure, Malali. Okay. Lots of things happening in Catalonia at the moment. Article 115 has been activated, I hear. Tell us what's happening. Well, basically what happened is that um, the Spanish government activated uh, Article 115, which allows it to intervene in the operation of a regional government, the Catalan government in this case, obviously, 
and it's a sort of black box, black hole Article 155. You can apply it however you like. And what has happened is that the, the Spanish government is going to use this not to implement a 115 light, as the sort of spin was before they made the decision, but to actually do the following things. Eliminate, uh, sack the Catalan cabinet, the premier, the vice premier and all the ministers. Impose a direct rule from Madrid. Uh, run all the ministries from Madrid. Uh, sack up to 300 senior executives and, and then they'll be able to go after the agencies in the, in Catalonia that they identify as being the sort of uh, institutional support base uh, of the of the Catalan independence movement, which is the Catalan police and the Catalan media and the Catalan education system. So basically, this is an all-out war um, being directed from the hardest sectors, the most right-wing sectors of the ruling PP, the ruling People's Party in Madrid, to take advantage of the situation to try and you know, wipe out the gains of the Catalan, um, Catalan autonomy, which has been accumulated over the past 40 years, using the excuse of the, the referendum. In real terms, there are half a million people at least out there who are opposing this uh, draconian measures taken by... Um, much more than that. Much, much more than, than that, Lali. The, the poll we got, the latest polls we have, is that uh, 68% of people are opposed to this 155, uh, Article 155 intervention. That's we're talking then about uh, four million, four million or four and a half million of Catalonia's seven and a half million people, uh, and there's no a- an active support for it. Is would be around twenty percent, around uh, or even less than twenty percent. So, the unionist uh, forces here who actually support, and I don't mean all unionists, but the unionist forces who support this intervention would be in a small minority, maybe fifteen, twenty percent of the population. It it seems like obviously an attack on democracy and there yes. hasn't been any outcry from any of the neighboring countries about this because there seems to be this this trend now any group of people who want independence like like the Kurds for example that was a big issue the Scottish movement as well they, they support from Quebec as far as I know and uh, the EU has basically washed its hands off it how do the Catalans hope to move forward with this because the the violence perpetrated by Rajoy's Rajoy's governments are enormous. Well, that's what everybody's discussing at the moment. Um, Basically, what you've got is the Rajoy uh, government has managed to sell um, its, its, its narrative to the rest of the institutional Europe, the European Union, the European Commission, European Council. Uh, and that narrative is, well, this is all unconstitutional. It's all illegal. And this is an illegal referendum and we have no choice but to do what we're doing. We don't want to do it, but we've got to do it because, you know, we've got to defend the Constitution. And there's a, a, a large element of truth in that. It isn't it, it isn't an unconstitutional re- referendum. The, but the point, of course, is that this unconstitutional referendum was rendered necessary uh, by the need to carry out the democratic will for self-determination of the Catalan people. They couldn't get it through an agreed Scottish-style referendum. Therefore, what were they supposed to do? Just, you know, oh, give up? Or, no, what the, the government said was, we will either we will have a, an agreed Scottish-style referendum or we'll do a unilateral referendum. As soon as they did the unilateral referendum, they had to adopt a referendum legislation, uh, which was un- unconstitutional. So... The real question, of course, is the uh, uh, the undemocratic nature of the Spanish constitution. 
Now, the next pe- thing people say is, oh, well, if it's undemocratic, then you have to change it democratically. But that raises the question of um, is there a, how do you create a majority to change the constitution in the Spanish state when the two major parties are totally resistant to accepting the right to self-determination of the component nationalities of the Spanish state, the Basques, the Galicians and the Catalans. Um, So what you've got is the core conflict behind all the talk, the core conflict is, do you recognise the right to self-determination of the nations of the Spanish state? Um, And do you have a constitution that does that and allows that right to self-determination to be exercised? And there's only one all-Spanish party that does accept that, and that is uh, Podemos and Mm. the allies it works with. So... This is how we've, where we've, how we've arrived, where we've arrived. Now, the European Union, of course, is the institutions. I'm not talking about people in other countries. The European Union is is very happy to have that convenient excuse. Ah, uh, unconstitutional. Oh well, sorry, yes. nothing we can do. Yes. Uh, because uh, because that helps them confront something that they absolutely don't want to do anything about, uh, which is the undemocratic nature of the structures of the European Union and the right to self-determination in Europe. Is Europe as it is now structured? That's it forever, isn't it? That's it's fixed, in, ir- irrespective of the, the, the repression of nationalities that takes place uh, and the oppression of nationalities, most of all in Spain. Spain is where this most happens, but also in other parts of, the, of Europe. We can't do anything about that. So John claude Juncker, who is the European Commission president, president, comes out and says, quote, well, I understand people why want to assert their identity, but I don't want to be in charge of a European Union of 98 states, which was a ridiculous exaggeration because there's only four or five real processes of self-determination and of national struggle going on in, in, in the European Union at the moment. So that's that explains the situation. And this has caused a lot of heartburn amongst the most conservative parts of the nationalist movement here who look towards Europe as an antidote to Spain. Mm. But this Europe they're looking towards is, is not, it can't be the Europe of the institutions and they, the, you know, the scales are falling from their eyes about that. It has to be the Europe of ordinary people. Now, I just finished to say that there are parts, of course, there are some governments in Europe who are, have already said that they will recognise the Catalan government if it does a declaration of independence, the, the most obvious one being Slovenia. Mm. Um, so, and so the real, in Europe, the pressure is on to maintain the line. Yes. And so that I can imagine behind the scenes, you know, the Slovenians are being threatened with everything that uh, would, uh, you know, cause them to fall into line with the, uh, with the quotes, consens- consensus. But this battle is just, is just beginning. Uh, and uh, conservative Catalan nationalism is becoming weaker and weaker as it becomes clearer and clearer that only you know mass struggle, mass struggle organised by the ordinary people, is going to advance the cause. It's almost a suicide mission by Rajoy, where he had an alternative of allowing the the referendum to go ahead, and then um, knowing that you know that there are a substantial number of people who are against it in the first place. Anyway, that's a suicidal mission, and and that's what is has transpired into the situation today. But the Tell me a little bit more about Podemos. Then I want to talk about what is actually happening on the on the on the streets at the moment. So Podemos in Catalan is 100% in support of the referendum, of course. But Podemos Spain wide wasn't so supportive, I hear. So what's the story there? Well, the the the, the story is: what attitude do you have to the 
referendum that was held, a referendum for self-determination that was held on the 1st of October. How do you read that? Now, here, the pro-independence forces say this was a genuine referendum, of course, done under very difficult circumstances, but it was the best referendum that could be done. 12,000 or 10 to 12,000 police trying to stop you. Podemos's position in the state, Podemos's position here is that no, it was not a binding decision, but basically we have to accept that this was the best that could be done and we should act on the basis of that. Even though we in Podemos Catalonia don't say that it was a really a real binding decision, the fact that the people are out there mobilised, defending it, fighting for its application means we have to be with the people. So that's their contradiction, actually. Podemos at the level of the state uh, says not a binding um, referendum, but we are opposed to 155. We are utterly op- this, we're utterly opposed to that. This means we have to replace the Rajoy government. And it also shows that the PSOE, this the socialist, uh, Spanish mm. Socialist Workers' Party official opposition, has is just like the old PSOE, the new PSOE, which was you know everybody had hope in once when Pedro Sanchez did the big rank and file campaign to regain the uh, the federal secretary's position and won against the old machine. Um, that on this national question, this new PSOE, PSOE is just like the old PSOE. The national question will not be solved in the Spanish state unless you support Podemos. Okay, well that's true, but the, the the problem with that position is that what are they saying about what is actually happening here on the ground? Is Podemos going to support you know the the mass struggle that is going to break out here to defend the Catalan institutions? I imagine they will, hmm. but that means they are then and more and more in a contradiction, and and the contradiction is that they're between their scheme about how things should happen in the Spanish state, which is you know via them getting a majority in the Spanish parliament, forcing a minority PSOE to align with them, having a change in, you know, having a change in the Spanish constitution. That's their schema. Uh, but then you have the real process, which is what we're living through here at mm. this moment. Uh, and the real process, to, to, for there to be a change in the Spanish state, the best thing that can happen is for Catalan independence to be declared and for the struggle against 155 to be victorious, because that will create a massive crisis in the Spanish state and force force a change. And basically what that would be would be the struggle that completes the removal of Francoism, the struggle that never happened, that, that, the, the completion that never took place uh, in the transition back in the 1970s. And it's, it's an ideal opportunity for Podemos to, to carry out that process and lead the process in this battle by going all out to support the Catalonian uh, independence. Well, they're scared, yes, but they're scared and they don't have conviction. Well, some of their people do, but they don't have real conviction about talking about this in the rest of Spain because they run up against blind anti-Catalanism and blind Spanish centralism. You know, any all things are... The, the most holy thing is the unity of the Spanish state. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yes. So, and, and you come across this. This is real, and it's real in, in big sectors of, of, um, of the working class. So, you know, you and it's... You know, there's a reflection of that in, in here. It's in here, uh, like the citizens, the new right cool party, which is trying to compete for the anti-Catalan vote or the unionist vote, um, is getting more support the more it goes to the right. I, that is to say, it's trying to knock off the PP from the right. So what have you got? You've got an actual battle for hearts and minds. that has got to be won 
in the whole of the Spanish state. The battle for hearts and minds is won in the country, in the parts of Spain where there's a national question. Galicia, Basque country, Valencia, Balearic Islands. But it's not won in the core you know, parts of the Spanish state, Andalusia, uh, Castilla-La Mancha, Castilla-Leon, etc., etc. So this means, this scares Podemos. They think if we go hard in defense of the Catalans, we're just going to lose support in the rest of the state. But there's no other way. It's because it's not a short-term battle for votes. It's a sort of long, to, medium to long-term battle to change people's convictions about what the state should be like. And, uh, you know, Spain's not going to survive because it's essentially an undemocratic structure like Turkey. Uh, It's not going to survive unless there's a a massive change in mass consciousness about uh, the national question and democratic rights. And and how come they don't see this as an opportunity to to attract some of those um, so-called new PSOE members who have illusions in PSOE? Well, they do. They do. do. I think they do. But they don't think – the way they think – the way they propose this is we are for recognising the plurinational nature of the Spanish state. The PSOE says it is uses the word plurinational now, but in effect, but in reality doesn't because it doesn't, it says that it, it doesn't agree on there being referenda at the level of the nationalities. The only referendum you can have is at the level of the whole of the state. Therefore, our difference, you've got to vote for us because we're, we're, we've got a better, a more advanced, a more democratic position than Persoe at the level of the Spanish state. But the struggle isn't developing. The struggle no. develops unevenly. The struggle, the struggle is in Catalonia. That's right. And what are you saying to people in Castilla-La Mancha or in Extremadura? Well, what are you wait. saying? To you're going to wait. Just wait for us yeah. <laughs> to get yeah. there. <laughs> and they say what, what they're saying is the message is, ah, oh, well, this just proves that the Spanish state is no good. But what about solidarity with Catalonia? What, right. Do we want them to win or not? That's the question. Do you want to, if you go to Extremadura, do you say, do you want uh, the Catalans to win this struggle? Or, and then people have to come up, people have to face up to, is the unity of the Spanish state an absolute? Is the, con- you know, the uh, Spanish constitution an absolute? Or it, uh, is it overridden by the democratic right to self-determination of the peoples that make up the Spanish state? So that's the discussion of discussions. Yeah, all these bourgeois states, all made-up states anyway. Is, uh, I mean... It, why, yeah, that's right. I mean, why don't Lenin's, they look at history? You know, the geographical lines drawn left, right, and center, depending on who's in power and who's not in power. I find that bizarre. Anyway, now what's actually happening on on the streets today now, um, Dick? Because, well, because I know university well, students and all sorts of people have mobilised. There's there's a strike uh, today of university students, which will, I, I imagine will be massively successful because the, the big strike they had on the 3rd of uh, October in, in, in protest against the police violence, 1st of October was 85% support. So the students students have just, the universities have just exploded, you know, all this, as always happens. You yeah. know, people were writing articles about students are apathetic and all they're thinking about oh, no. is their careers <laughs> and their, you know, passing exams. And then suddenly the whole thing blows up. Cause, but it's never sudden, it's always, but nobody's sees the underground preparation for these moments. You know? uh, so that's, I'm, I'm certain that's going to be big. There's a lot of concern about, about how to respond. Uh, there's a lot of discussion, uh, intense discussion going on about how to respond to actual implementation of 155. For example, uh, all the public sector agencies here, like the uh, TV stations, the TV system, the radios, 
uh, culture. All these workers have adopted resolutions saying we're not, we don't recognise 155, but we will not accept orders from uh, executives in, imposed on us under 155. Uh, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do when the Spanish state says, as, as it will, well, you don't obey orders, you're sacked or you're, you're fined. So it's going to be brutal. Mm. And unless there's an, an organised response, and there's, there's an absolutely clearly organised response which says passive resistance together, everybody's standing together, they won't win it. They won't, you can't win it uh, because, you know, people's jobs and, and, and livelihoods are at stake here. Um, so that's, that's the big discussion now. It's a big tactical discussion, uh, a critical tactical discussion about how to do passive resistance organised passive resistance. Now, part of the problem here is that the major union confederations have said they will not call on people to disobey instructions. Mm. Well, that's which is a very bad way to start. You know, yeah. you, you could say you, you you might like to say we will we will call on people. We will help people to, to the unions. Will help people. Will stand with people who want to resist these implement, the implementation of these instructions but they've started on with an almost confession of a concession of defeat but that's the two major conf uh, union confederations but what happened on october 3rd was that the so-called minor confederation uh were the ones who led the strike call and they've got a massive increase in support since then so the more stodgy bureaucratic confederations are being outflanked or have been outflanked or are in the process of being outflanked i don't want to be too categorical about this and if the minority confederations which in some industries in some sectors are actually majority not on the across the whole of catalonia but for example in education the main education union here which i put up on the blog mm. uh, the, the resolution uh, the main education union here says no disobedience we're not accepting anything and we're we're we're, we're going to support anybody who's who's victimized um, I mean, this is real, and it's real enough for there to be articles appearing in the Madrid press. There's an article yesterday in El País which says, can we make this thing work? Can we make 155 work? Or is the level of social disruption, social resistance going to be uh, so high uh, that the crisis is just going to spread to the rest of the Spanish state? So they're already some, some people are already who support 155 are already thinking about this could go wrong. You know, mm. this could be like a, a Vietnam we're getting into here. Yes. Yeah. Wait and see what happens. The big discussion there is that there's people getting cold feet in the in the government about are we declare independence and then that means the 155 and it all comes down on us like a, a great pile of, you know, we have to face all of that. We're all sacked. Uh, and the more conservative parts of Pedicut, which is the right nationalist or conservative nationalist party, uh, to which Puigdemont himself belongs, though he's he's the most left of the right, if you if I can put it that way. These people are starting to get cold feet, and so there's a big discussion going on at at this moment in the Catalan cabinet about whether or not they shouldn't go to early elections. And the CUP, the People's Unity List, which is the left nationalist anti-capitalists, who are part of the majority alliance for independence, have said, "You do that, we're out of here. We're not." That's the end of the alliance um, because you know, early elections would be the way, the most efficient way. And I'm quoting the Coop spokesperson from yesterday. Early elections would be the way to, most efficient way to demobilise the movement. Uh, 
Um, so they're they're not for that. They've got all their people working flat out on you know overcoming all these sort of problems that I mentioned earlier about you know how to organise, how to what tactical moves to make, when to be defensive, when to be offensive, all all the things you have to work out when you're in a struggle like this. The other thing they've got going for them, I should just say this, is that the mass, the members of the majority together for the yes majority in the parliament, the, those members who are closest to the Catalan mass organisations, the Catalan National Assembly and Omnium Cultural, have already come out and said the decision is going to be declaration of independence and we, the parliamentarians and the people together, will conduct the resistance. Mm. We'll see by tomorrow. You'll know what's going on. Mm, it's a real pity because such an opportunity for Podemos and moving to the left even more, taking all these people with them. This is uh, there'll be a big struggle in Podemos about this. Yes, uh, it has to be because there, there is a, nothing is simple, you know, in no, this place. Of course, of course. Uh, there's a big Any struggle place. in Podemos <laughs> because the, the the current, which has got the clearest view and is most committed to the right to na- right of nations to self determination here, which is anti capitalists, um, they are growing. They sound more convincing than any of the other people. They can sound more convincing than Iglesias, for example, because they, they've got their finger on the pulse of what's happening. That cannot but have result in big discussions in, in Podemos. And the more you know, the more conservative people who just wish this would all go away, and we yes. can get get back to talk, get back to talking about the social question, yeah. uh, as if those these things were just counterposed. Um, they they're more and more. Um, mute. Yes, it sounds like Podemos is not willing to learn to learn the lessons that you know people learn through struggle, and they will wake up and they're going to ask major questions, and you've got to be ready to answer them and and f- follow them, lead them, whatever you want to do. But if Podemos, I think they're, they're vi- just I just on that. I think they're victims of their schema. The schema yeah. what I mentioned earlier. The view is. Oh, change will come through change at the level of the Spanish state. So this is the preferred schema. You know, this is how we would like things to happen. But it's not how, it's not, it's certainly not going to happen that way. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. All right. That was um, Dick Nichols, um, who is the international correspondent based in Barcelona for Green Left Weekly, um, talking about the whole situation in Spain. Um, we only have probably three to four minutes before Lydia Forp um, is going to ring in. Um, don't really probably spend a bit too much time for her to discuss a new story. So I'm just going to go play a quick song that will go on for three minutes and then we'll go right into Lydia um, when she calls into the studio. Word. And so this is Always Was by Combat Wombat. Hey, you're back on Green Left Weekly um, Radio. We're still just waiting for the call-in from Lydia. Um, might be running a bit late, so um, Zane's going to talk about a few headlines from the mainstream press. All right, so the other breakfast shows usually do the daily headlines. We don't, because we're usually trying to cram in heaps of Green Left stuff for you on a Friday. Anyway, today we are. We've got the papers. Okay, so we've got the Melbourne Age. Uh, it's, uh, it's about, obviously, the uh, AFP raids and AWU. Turnbull stands firm. Michaelia Cash acted entirely properly. Minister clings to job. So that's a pretty self-explanatory headline. Uh, the front page of The Australian. Joyce D-Day amid cash crisis. So that's talking about how the... 
Uh, I think it's the high court do their thing today and decide what's going to happen to the small um, cricket team of politicians who are dual nationals and who found out that oh, actually I've, I'm entitled to dual citizenship. I think it's kind of xenophobic, nationalist garbage, that rule anyway. But uh, it will be interesting to see what happens if a bunch of Liberals get kicked out of their seat and there's by-elections because, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the Liberals only hold government by one seat federally. And, yeah, and then we've got Young Rich Take Success Global on the financial review and it's about young rich people so that looks really boring and rubbish all right i uh do believe we've got lydia thorpe on the line uh lydia is running as a greens candidate in the upcoming northcote by-election uh welcome lydia Thank you. Good morning. All right. Um, so um, I just wanted to go, I guess the first question I want to ask you, um, Lydia, is um, what has inspired you to run as a candidate um, for someone who has been involved in the movements for quite a while? And um, why did you choose to run with the Greens? Well, I've been born into politics. You know, I mean, we've been campaigning forever uh, for our rights as a people, and we've been fighting to protect our country forever, you know, as a people. So it comes naturally um, for me to, you know, want to continue that. And the reason why I chose the Greens is because, you know, the, the Greens' values and, and policies align to my values. And, um, you know, it certainly wasn't going to be any other party. And I think, you know, the Greens have... Um, been campaigning in these areas for many, many years, and they've they've got the um, the respect of the people, and they're a, we're a growing party. And I I just think that it's about time that you know um, someone was to step up to the plate and um, join a party and you know and bring people together to fight for um, for our people and for the protection of country and for the for the greater good of of, of all. Um, because the old parties, you know, they, they don't um, seem to be getting it right. Um, they seem to be selling us off and, and selling us out and, and not looking after our country. So, um, yeah, the Greens was um, a, a place for me. Okay, my next question is, I guess, what are some of the issues that you are hoping to raise um, during this election campaign? Well, I, I think, you know, getting back to the environment, um, the Great Forest National Park is, is certainly something that's very close to my heart. And going out to to, to Langi, um a couple of weeks ago and just sitting there and, and seeing the destruction and the continued logging of old growth forest is, you know, it's 2017 and it's, it's unbelievable that only 90 minutes from Melbourne we're still cutting down, you know, these century-old trees that affect our... Our, our climate, but also the water that we drink in, in this electorate. So that's something that um, is close to my heart, but it's certainly something that the people of, of this electorate are very strong about also. Um, another area is, you know, our public transport system. Getting to work every day is, a, is an absolute nightmare to, to get on the, you know, the, the trains and the trams in the morning um, with the constant overcrowding and 
you know, there's just not enough um, trains and trams to cater for the amount of people we have. Uh, and also, you know, sustainable and smart development. Um, that's, you know, the people of Northgate are saying to me that they're concerned about the amount of development that's happening in the electorate, how developers seem to be calling the shots rather than the community, and people have real concerns about that. So I think, um, you know, one of, the, one of the issues there is that we need to ensure that um, developer donations aren't part of politics so that these developers respect community and work with community to ensure that um, any development is what the community wants and needs. I guess my next question um, is, um, you know, as someone who is an Aboriginal woman um, running for uh, as a candidate for the Greens, um, mm-hmm. what has been kind of like the experiences um, that you've had while campaigning, especially in light of this controversy um, around that would probably be a big issue around your electorate of this whole, you know, Durban Council changing the um, choosing not to recognise Australia Day? Uh, look, it's been a mixed response. Um, certainly door knocking, um, you know, when people realise it's me knocking on their door, it's something that they want to talk about. Um, and usually it's because people don't understand. And every door that I knocked on and, and where people were um, questioning that decision, I've been able to, to talk through how that affects me as an Aboriginal woman and how that has affected me all my life and continues to affect my children and my family. So when when people are, you know, I suppose given some um, insights and some education around why this is so important, people are okay with it. You know, I had one um, gentleman who, who was still celebrating the AFL grand final and he just says, oh, no, no, I'm not, you know, Darabin Council, you know, they've done the wrong thing with change day. We need Australia Day and... I said, look, this isn't about cancelling it. It's about making it inclusive for everybody. And when I, you know, spent five minutes at his door, he just turned around and said, well, that makes a lot of sense. Now I understand and I'll be voting green. So I think, you know, we just need to... These people have been denied the real truth through their education journey in this country and we need to re-educate people and we need... The truth needs to come out about the, you know, some of the, the, the sad history that we have to deal with. And I think once people are on board with that, then they'll support um, the decisions that, that are being made. Yeah, I think um, now going on another kind of thing I wanted to ask you about, um, kind of have like two questions left um, in terms of the time we have allocated, um, is currently the... Um, current um, state government is going through, you know, a treaty process of some kind, um, but clearly they're between Aboriginal people and the Aboriginal community and, um, you know, um, Victoria, the state of Victoria, um, but there's a lot of discontent um, about it um, from the Aboriginal community. And I wanted to, to hear from you, um, could you explain, you know, why you think because you've said this before, why clean ba- clan, sorry, clan-based treaty process is important in Victoria and what's wrong with what the state government is currently doing? Okay, so uh, before colonisation, there were 300 clans that existed in Victoria and, and you know, over the borders because we didn't have these, the same borders that exist today. 
And of those 300 clans, we have just over 100 left. So that, you know, the other, you know, 170 have been totally wiped off the face of the earth, wiped out. Now, a clan-based treaty is about allowing or or giving you an opportunity for for those clans that are left to be at the table and to be the people that negotiate and discuss the treaty. The way that the state governments are doing this at the moment takes away self-determination and takes away human rights in terms of free informed prior consent. So the way that the process that they've decided to undertake is they've hired um, Ernst Young consultants and they've paid them $600,000 to go out and talk to Aboriginal people across the state. Now, that has not worked. And as a result of a failed consultation process, they then came up with the idea of a community assembly to take the treaty discussion further. That process, again, has failed because they only had something like 88 applications. There was a, a, a um, rigorous process to, you know, that three people decided who was in and who was out. Many, many respected elders have been rejected from that process, and it does not cover the, um, the hundred or so clans that exist today in the state. So it's, it's a flawed process, and it hasn't been a process where our elders and and other sections of our community have been able to participate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I just wanted to ask, you know, as and that's all very informative, I wanted to ask kind of like, you know, as someone who has been involved in like, you know, the, um, the fight for your people for a very long time, involved in the grassroots and in the social movements, and um, are now moving on to parliamentary politics. I want to ask the question, if you're elected, um, how will you use your elected position to support those social movements? And also kind of a general comment on, you know, what do you think is the relationship between elected um, elected representatives, or what should be the relationship between elected representatives and, um, you know, progressive social movements? Well, you know, I'm, I'm known to stand up for uh, accountability and transparency within my own community. I'm be- I've been very, very strong about that for a long time. I want to see the same thing in our state parliament. And I think that any elected person should never lose, lose sight of how they got there. And that is from, from the people in their electorate. So I want to be, you know, a person that is connected still with their electorate from that grassroots level and ensure that, you know, the Northcote people are heard in Parliament about what matters, to, you know, to us as a community. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we still have three minutes left. Um, I guess um, one other question I want you to comment on is um, comment on the kind of Greens, because basically there's um, Labor... Uh, putting this plan to sell off um, 80% of public housing. And I want to explain, you know, what are the Greens campaigning in response um, to oppose this kind of um, Labor's plan to sell off um, 80% of public housing land to private developers? 
Well, we're, we're campaigning hard against that, of course. We need every bit of public housing stock that 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 we can we can get. I mean, you know, the waiting list for public housing is over 30,000 people. I can't understand hmm. what government thinks selling off public housing is a good idea when we've got, you know, people in crisis needing housing. So um, we'll continue to um, fight the sale of any public housing and ensure that, you know, existing stock are maintained or upgraded. Um, you know, there's, there's a few under, under threat, obviously, in this area, and I've been attending VCAT to support local residents. And it's just appalling how people are being treated, even in that process. And it's, again, the developers here that are dictating the terms and forcing our people out. And that's where we've got to stop. We've got to stop these, you know, developer donations in politics. It has to stop. Okay, we've only a minute to left. Um, left. I guess I'll just close up with, you know, do you have any um, final kind of comments you want to say um, on this interview? Uh, I, I'd just like to say that it's, it's about time that we had a change, change of guard, I suppose, for this electorate. We need to do politics differently. And by electing me as the, as the candidate or the, the member for Northgate, I'll be a strong voice for all of our people in Northgate and I'll continue to fight for things like public housing, for our environment and ensure that people can get to work on time in a, in a um, comfortable, uh, safe public transport system. Hi. And uh, oh, we should also say, yeah, how can people uh, get involved and support your campaign if, if they want to yeah, help uh, help get you elected? Uh, you can get on Facebook and like the Lydia Thorpe page. No. Uh, there's some links there where you can sign up and on get involved. Uh, yeah, come and, come and door knock with us and, um, and come and be part of making history in Northwest. Yeah. All right. Thank sure. you very much, Lydia. Thank you. Thanks, Eves. Bye. <clears throat> All right. Uh, that's Lydia Thorpe, the Greens candidate in the upcoming Northcote by-election. Uh, you were listening to 3CR. It is 8 a.m. on a Friday morning. This is Green Left Radio. And you know what time it is. It is activist calendar time, time, time. Okay, so um, on the activist calendar, I'll just give you a bit of an announcement. Um, usually we announce that every Friday we do a Flinders Street store where we sell Green Left Weekly. Unfortunately, that's not going to be the case this Friday, simply because there's going to be uh, an emergency protest um, supporting support the refugees on Manus Island at 4.30pm at Casaladine Place, corner of Spring Street and Longsdale in the city at 4.30pm. Um, since we are talking about um, housing before, there is going to be uh, a film screening on, on, on basically housing activists in Spain fighting defending residents against eviction. Um, that is going to be a, a film screening of Yes, You Can, um, and it's basically going to be at, at 6.30 tonight at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street, opposite um, the RMIT, and it's a fundraiser for Green Left Weekly. So if you attend it, you'll be... Uh, inadvertently supporting Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, our next announcement is um, on 
Sunday, um, there'll be a Stop Adani Summit. Uh, I'm not sure if tickets are completely sold out, but it's basically going to be a way of networking with other camp, um, groups working on the campaign and space to make real plans for the next big community push to stop Adani. Um, and it's going to be happening from 9.30am to 4.30pm at Fitzroy Town Hall, 201 Na- Napier Street, Na- Napier Street in Fitzroy, which is probably a short walk um, from this um, studio itself. Um, on Sunday, the 29th of October, there will also be another event happening. Um, there will be an eyewitness report on Venezuela today um, where you get to hear from solidarity activist Cora Winter, who we actually previously interviewed on, uh, on Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, she has just um, gone on a trip to Venezuela for a month uh, and she's going to be reporting on her experiences there. Um, that is going to be happening from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Resistance Centre at Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, and it's hosted by Socialist Alliance. Um, there'll be a seminar on Tuesday um, hosted by Environmental Justice Australia on the 31st of October, and it's about toxic and temp- terminal, the health impacts and regulation of pollution from Australia, Australian cold power fired stations. Um, that will be happening at 6 p.m. ground floor 60 lot. Leicester Street in Carlton and you can make bookings on Facebook but um, just probably search Seminar Toxic and Terminal and you'll probably be able to find it on Facebook um, on um on, there'll be a rally. Um, there'll be actually a lot of rallies happening on Wednesday, the first of um, first of November. Um, a lot of them, um, there'll be a rally stand for Victorians' climate leadership. Um, but that will be the strengthened Victorian Climate Act, um, Change Act takes effect on this day and brings the state climate laws in line with the Paris Agreement. But with the federal government beholden to ideologues on the hard right, there's little prospect of federal action on climate. This failure leaves Victorians exposed to climate impacts such as increased increasing heat waves, bushfires, drought, drought and crop failures. It's essential to see Victoria stand up and lead the way on climate change. So that will be happening at 10.30am, Parliament Steps on Spring Street in the city. Then following on from that, and it's kind of all being organised by the same group, there'll be a protest, Stop Adani, at the International Mining Conference. Um, That will be um, a public rally outside Australia's biggest mining um, conference at 1.30pm at Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre. Um, there'll be a book launch on grappling with the the bomb. Uh, on the sick, basically, it's a book about the sixth anniversary of British Britain's nineteen fifty seven to nineteen fifty eight H bomb tests, and it'll be join and it'll be basically the book tells the history of the women, men and women who, who are living with the consequences of nine atmospheric. UK nuclear tests at Christmas Island and Malden Island, and it's launched by Pacific uh, Pacific historian Professor Stuart Firth, um, and that will be at the Amelia Shaw Bar at six thirty upstairs at the Retreat Hotel, which is at two eight zero Sydney Road, and you can RSP to uh, NFIP or phone zero four two one eight four zero one zero zero. From Thursday, November the 2nd to November the 5th, um, there will be the Palestinian Film Festival um, happening at Cinema Nova. So just go into the Cinema Nova website and you'll find out where all the screenings are um, within that associated time slot. On Thursday, November the 2nd, um, this is following on from an interview that we did last week on Green Left Weekly Radio, or I think maybe might have been two weeks ago. 
Um, basically, there'll be a solid um, NTEU uh, at Victoria University will be protesting at the Victoria University National Council meeting. Yeah, that's uh, outrageous. Which is, so yeah, Victoria University has unleashed a round of forced redundancy, which includes um, the NTEU branch president. And this is not a coincidence, and it's basically a vicious attack on uh, on on the NTEU. So they'll be at happening at 12 noon at the city campus, 300 Flinders Street. Because um, I was discussing at the last meeting um, about this campaign um, with the NTU, that because it's this is a very small space for the rally, we're hoping we can get a lot of people there and potentially we might have to block the traffic if it comes to that because it's such a small walkway. Um, this And uh, on that Thursday night, there'll be um, the 2nd of November, there'll be a Beyond the Bars city launch um, launch of the Beyond the Bars 2017, a double C- CD of highlights from this year's NADOC um, Week's prison broadcast. I'm um, sorry about that. Oh. Hey, Zane, can you just take over for... Yep. Indeed you do. So, yeah, we're talking about Thursday, November 2. That's that Beyond the Bars uh, CD launch. So there's uh, a panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration, Q&A and deadly music. Free CDs, snacks and drinks will be available. It's an alcohol-free event with disability access. That's at 6pm at Mazar, 184 to 186 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy. And that's organised by this here rad radio station, 3CR. And then there's also, on Thursday, November 2, heaps of stuff happening next Thursday night. Uh, film screening, Guarding the Galilee, features farmers, dive instructors and boat operators... Uh, the film explores the impact of the proposed um, uh, Adani project. Uh, oh, oh, well, guarding the Galilee. It's about all the mines that they want to open there to export heaps of thermal coal through the Great Barrier Reef. After the film, they'll discuss what actions local people can take to make a difference with the campaign. And where is page three? Uh, so that that one's seven o'clock next Thursday at the Guide Hall at One Faversham Street, Canterbury, and also next Thursday, the second of November, there is a book launch, Red, with Stephen Moline and Stuart McIntyre. St- Stephen Moline grew up among radicals; he kept a notebook. Red tracks the lives of two families of Australian political idealists and their motives, expectations and gradual disillusionment. Uh, So that is five bucks. It's at 7pm next Thursday. It's the the new international bookshop at Trades Hall. So, bit of a clash, frankly. There's uh, about 50 left-wing events all happening next Thursday night. We're at Saturday, November 4th. That's Melbourne for you, though. Saturday, November 4, seminar, Northern Syria's Feminist Revolution, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. at Vic Uni City Campus, 300 Flinders Street City, organised by the Kurdish Democratic Community Centre, Kurdish Women's League and Australians for Kurdistan. Uh, Sikh Genocide Remembrance March, organised in remembrance of 1984 Sikh Genocide in India, to raise awareness about genocides and human rights violations. The march will start from Fed Square and will finish at State Library. Uh, the gathering at Fed Square will start 10am, so that's next Saturday. All right, I think we're going to wrap up Actors Calendar for now because we have got 
uh, Fred Fuentes on the line, who's going to talk to us about the recent um, provincial kind of the equivalent of what would be state elections here in Australia that have just happened in Venezuela in the context of uh, the ongoing kind of political crisis and and the right wing trying to foment basically fascist change. So, yes, welcome, welcome, Fred. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, I've just, um, there was a bit of a mistake. All right, so, um, Fred, um, can you give us like a bit of a quick report back and uh, overview of what happened at that election? Yeah, well, look, if we just basically focus on the raw figures uh, for what happened on the uh, October 15 election for governors uh, in Venezuela, there are 23 uh, states in Venezuela, so there were 23 positions up for grabs. Uh, coming into the elections, the, the governing United Socialist Party of Venezuela and uh, the broader coalition of, of smaller parties that support it uh, essentially uh, had 20 of those 23 governorships, uh, while the opposi- opposition uh, grouped in the alliance known as the MUD, the uh, Democratic Unity Roundtable, uh, had, free govern- had the remaining three governorships. Uh, following these elections, the PSUV... Um, has lost a couple of, of governorships. It's now down to 18, but yet still very much seen as a very strong result uh, given the, the current political and economic situation in the country. And the opposition has won five uh, governorships. Uh, uh, should be also noted uh, two, two points to make of the, the results. First, it was the very high turnout that occurred for the election results. It was unsure if many people would turn up to vote or not. There was fear that there could be abstention uh, both amongst government supporters, uh, but also amongst opposition supporters. However, the turnout itself uh, was over 11 million voters of a voting population of about eight, 18 million, making it about 61%, which is the second highest ever uh, turnout for a regional elections. Uh, and the other point I would make is, um, as I noted, the opposition went from three to five governorships. Uh, however, it, it lost all of the three governorships that it currently that it held previously, uh, and won five completely new ones. Those three that it previously held were this time around won by by the PSUV, um, and the, well, the opposition were able to win seats in other areas, in particularly the three of the main uh, um, states located on the border region with Colombia. So that's really the raw data, the raw information of what occurred on October fifteen. I guess um, what are kind of what is kind of like um, the implications? I guess in terms of this election, does this um, show that the the left um, have more electoral support than say the right wing opposition, and that the right wing opposition is losing their base? Well, I, I think it shows two things. Firstly, it it, it, it basically blows apart the myth presented by the media uh, that supposedly in Venezuela, what we saw earlier this year with the protest was was simply a, a broad People's, you know, it was the people versus the government, uh, and and it just made invisible uh, the fact that a very important section of the population continues to, um, I would say, more than simply support the government, and supports the the Bolivarian process or the, the the aims and goals of the Bolivarian process that's been underway in that country now for for over two decades, uh, one that's focused on trying to bring about real societal change uh, to to Venezuela, and of course. For now, many of those people in the communities and the social movements uh, see the government as being part of that process and defend the government uh, against the opposition attacks. But uh, I don't think their their vote is simply limited 
uh, to, to one of the defence of Maduro or defence of their, their local governors, but it, it goes to a bigger project that they've been uh, fighting for. This section of the population, which we can debate exactly how big of a, you know, of the population it is, is it majority, is it minority, is it, is it whatnot, uh, you know, it, it's made invisible by the media, but it showed itself once again in these elections that the United Socialist Party of Venezuela continues to be the, the largest supported party uh, of, of all of them, because I, I should mention that all of, all of the all of the governorships won by the government were from the PCV, from the opposition. Uh, of those five, four were won by one party, which is Acción Democrática, running in the in the Mud Alliance, and the the fifth was won by by a separate party, which was also part of the um the Mud Alliance, which is a uh, Justice Justice First Party. So I think that's the first point to make the important support that the government and the, the governing party uh, and, and, and the Bolivarian process continues to maintain. The second, though, relating to what you said, is that it should be noted that the opposition did go into this election divided. Uh, there was uh, a minority section, but not a completely insignificant section of the, of the opposition coalition uh, who refused to accept the legitimacy of these elections and therefore called for a boycott. Now, of course, it's very hard to tell exactly what sort of an impact that had on, on the opposition's vote. Um, but I think it would be fair to say that we didn't see the full expression of the opposition vote in these elections because at least a section of, of the opposition support base uh, uh, abstained from, from these elections. I think given that there are presidential elections coming next year, uh, it would be unlikely to see any of the opposition parties boycott, although one, one you know, it's a long way to go. One doesn't know what happens and, and there are already increasing fissures and fractions within the, the opposition alliance as a result of, firstly, the debates about whether to participate in these elections or not, secondly, about whether to accept the election results or not, and thirdly, now, debates about whether to accept being sworn in by the National Constituent Assembly, a body that the opposition uh, rejects in general and doesn't uh, accept its legitimacy, uh, but which the governors have to be sworn in by. Uh, all of these are causing further fractures uh, in, in the opposition alliance. So uh, I don't think we could say the, the elections itself was a true reflection of how many people may necessarily support the opposition or at least be opposed to, to, to the current government. Um, but what we do know is that the opposition, uh, particularly its, its leadership, is, is now in a, in a very sort of a, a serious debate amongst itself about what, what to do, given the, the real failure of its strategy to date this year of trying to overthrow the government after four months of violent protest after attempting to sabotage the National Constituent Assembly elections and then, you know, half-heartedly or at least divide, in a divided manner going into these gubernatorial elections and, whilst I said, making small gains in terms of the number of governorships that, that they now control really did not in any way sort of achieve the sort of the result they were aiming for or thought they would get. Um, Fred, just wondering, what, what is the latest with that Constituent Assembly? Has there been any uh, sort of communique or updates from that Assembly about what they've been discussing and, and what their what proposals they've come up with? Well, look, the, so the National Constituent Assembly itself was an initiative that came from uh, President Maduro. Uh, it came in the context of the, the ongoing street violence that was... Uh, you know, really threatening the sort of political stability uh, in, in the country earlier this year. Um, it, it was the delegates to the Assembly w w um, were elected in a popular election. The opposition boycotted that, that particular election. Uh, Eight million people turned out, roughly, uh, to vote for um, constituent Assembly members on July 30. 
since that time, it's been meeting and discussing a number of issues. Obviously, it's sort of key priority, or at least its initial priority, was to mm, restore some level of political stability in the country, and particularly put an end to the, the sort of violence that was really you know, threatening to engulf uh, all of the country. And, and it, it succeeded in that. You know, we, we really have not seen uh, in, any, in any way a return to those kind of violent street protests uh, that were occurring uh, earlier this year. Apart from that, it has begun to discuss some questions about the, the real sort of economic hardships, uh, well, the economic crisis, really, that, that's been hitting the country now for a number of years uh, and trying to figure out how to deal with spiralling inflation, the impact that has on, you know, uh, basic, base, price of basic goods just going up every day. You know, what we've seen essentially since the July 30 elections in Venezuela is this contradictory situation where in many ways, the sort of shortages that were very much talked about in the media have, have tended to subside. They haven't completely disappeared, and certainly not when it comes to food and medicine. Um, but when it comes to food supplies, we see that the you know all of, all of a sudden food has started to reappear on the shelves. Uh, but the real challenge is that the, the inflation means that the, these prices every day just becomes more and more expensive, and it just means that it, 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 it's there on the shelves, but it's very hard for ordinary people to, to be able to buy the, these products because of the prices. So the Constituent Assembly has been discussing that. However, I would say that what we are seeing uh, amongst ordinary people, and this has very much been expressed, uh, for instance, in social media, is a growing discontent with what they feel is a, a lack of action from the Constituent Assembly on, on that front. Um, a real sense coming from people who said, look, we, we voted for the Constituent Assembly uh, because you said that we needed this. You, we voted for the governors uh, because you know, we didn't want the opposition to, to come back into power. You know, but now we need the constituent assembly to take serious measures about the economy. You know, otherwise this situation can't continue to go on um, as it has been. So I think I'd say that for now, the the it's achieved its initial aim of the stabilising the country politically, but it, it it's in debt to the people uh, in terms of dealing with the economic issues. And I think that the longer it doesn't take decisive measures uh, on that front. Uh, the, the more likely it is that this discontent, uh, which, as I said, is, is, is a discontent that's been expressed by supporters of the government, supporters of the Constituent Assembly, uh, not talking here about opposition uh, uh, sort of supporters, mm. uh, you know, this kind of discontent is likely, likely to boil over in some form. You know, what, what form it takes, one doesn't know. But let's see the Constituent Assembly, you know, it, it said that it's some, in the next week it's going to announce a number, a new series of measures, um, and we'll see what, what sort of impact that has. I, I would just add just one last point about decisions taken by the Constituent Assembly uh, just overnight. Uh, it's taken one decision which you know, may be of some impact, not in the economic front, but on the political front, which is, as I mentioned for the previous question, the, it, the, government, the National Constituent Assembly was the one that had convoked these gov regional elections and it said, let's bring them forward. They were meant to be uh, later in the year, said so bring them forward to October to let people express themselves democratically. The opposition knew that, agreed with that. They knew that they would have to be sworn in by the Constituent Assembly once elected. Now, the four governors from the Democratic Action Party, after initially saying they wouldn't be sworn in by the Constituent Assembly, agreed to it and have been sworn in. However, the fifth governor, uh, which is the one that was elected in Zulia, uh, continues to refuse to be sworn in by the Constituent Assembly. Uh, the state government, the state parliament in Zulia, has therefore declared uh, his position vacant. And the National Constituent Assembly has said that new elections will be held now in Zulia uh, for governors again uh, because of the refusal of the current governor to basically 
swear himself in and, and, and assume his position. So we'll we'll see what, what the what the reaction is to, to that from, from the opposition. No doubt they'll turn around and scream about dictatorship and so on. I would I would imagine so, but as I said, it's only a decision that's only just, just happened. So. Okay, I just wanted to last that um I guess um the last question I kinda of wanted to ask is I mean, when we interviewed you previously around the constitute kind of assembly, um there were you know, Venezuela was kind of seen in kind of like this kind of state of really heavy polarisation. Has there been any, you know, you've alluded to a lot of this um, into your previous comments, but what is kind of really the state of the status quo at this point? Like, um, is the right graining ground? Are they weaker than before? You know, is the left starting to make advances in Venezuela? What is really the the status quo at this point? Look, uh, in, in some, I would say that the, the government continues to have the slight initiative. Um, it has the initiative because it, it was really on the back foot early this year. The Constituent Assembly turned that situation around. Uh, it, 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 it helped to nullify the, the violent offensive of the opposition, and it gave the government now a new sort of institution from which it could begin to carry out some measures. In that process, the opposition has begun to fracture, so they're very unclear about what direction to take now. Um, as you can see, there's clearly a wing that's opted that the, the best road to, to defeat Maduro is to just continue to plug along the electoral road, and that's why they've run for governors. And, and you know, they've picked up a couple of extra extra seats in that process and very much have their eye on the presidential elections uh, for next year, which they believe that they can win uh, in, in, in an election, uh, whereas another wing of the opposition have essentially decided that there is, there is no electoral road in Venezuela that you know, must must be for other undemocratic means that, that we get rid of the government. So that, that means that for now, temporarily, the government has the slight initiative. Uh, but as I said, if it doesn't use that initiative, if it doesn't use that position to start dealing with the economic problems, if it just simply relies on the fact that, well, we'll look, see, we're still the majority, we can win the vote, and, and, and that'll be enough, and you know, if we project the votes from today to the presidential elections next year, then then we'll win those elections again. I think I think it will find itself in a lot of trouble next year because very much not not that there hasn't already been, um, you know, sort of a, a discontent amongst its support base because of the, the the heavy hardship being faced as a result of the economic crisis. Uh, but 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 now what we're seeing is that's combined with a sort of sense of. Well, as I said before, you know, ordinary people go and well, look. We you told us to vote for the constituent assembly. We did that. You know, we came out again to the venue for the gubernatorial elections. But now, now it's time to to pay your debt back to us and to do some, you know, carry out some measures because you know, people are a bit, bit sort of uh, uh, worn, you know, a bit over the government discourse, particularly when it comes to the economic situation or the government talk of a, of an economic war, which many sort of see that there's an element of truth to that. Uh, but, but the problem is is that you, you can't just keep talking about an economic war without then being able to explain in detail how this war is being carried out and, more importantly, without then carrying out measures against that war. No one no one goes into a war and then doesn't fight back. Uh, or if you do, most people are generally not going to follow the, the leaders into, into that war. And so I think that's where many people are feeling, well, if, if there's a war, let's, let's fight back, let's do something, let's carry out some measures to fix the economic crisis. Uh, otherwise... Some, something something's going to give somewhere, uh, and I think that's sort of where where we're at at the moment uh, in, in the situation in Venezuela. So a very 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 tenuous status quo, really. Um, Fred, we've we've just got a couple minutes left, so we've just got to wrap it up. But I was just 
I'm just wondering, are there any actual concrete proposals coming forward for how to fight back in that economic war and, and how to address um, inflation and, and food affordability and, and all of those sort of issues? Look, there's, you know, it, there's a whole range of different proposals that have been put forward, uh, many of them that have been submitted to the Constituent Assembly. And these are proposals that range from uh, global, I suppose, or, you know, sort of nationwide sort of measures. So, for instance, having a much more stricter control over who, uh, how US dollars are dispersed uh, in the country. Um, there's a currency control system at the moment. Importers have to apply to the government for dollars to then get those dollars and go and import. But that system has been become corrupted. And what people are saying was, well, why are we just giving out money to private enterprises if we know they're going to corrupt the system? Why isn't the state, for instance, taking a big, much bigger role uh, in, in importation and punishing those that have been rorting the system until now? So you have those, there's kind of measures like that at, at the higher level about greater state involvement in, in imports uh, to, to help deal with the current situation, or all the way down to local-level proposals of, how to more how to involve the community councils and communes, which are essentially the sort of grassroots level of, of community organisation, uh, more deeply in the process of production and how to build commune to commune relationships where agricultural communes in the countryside who produce can have direct access to uh, consumers living in communes in the cities, rather than having to rely on private businesses to transport that food which, again, many times can use their position of influence, firstly, to, to rip off producers uh, and, secondly, rip off consumers. And thirdly, as part of the economic war, just, just simply sabotage the whole process of the transportation of food. So, And these are just two of the many other proposals that, that have been put forward, have been mm. discussed, and have been discussed, discussed for a while. But obviously that, that would take an entire another program to really try to uh, nut out the, the situation of how to solve the, the big economic crisis in, in Venezuela. Mm. All right, um, we're pretty much out of time now. Um, so thank you very much, um, Fred, um, for speaking to us about what's happening in Venezuela. Um, we're going to play the ending outro now and also would like to thank Lydia Forp um, for being on our program and to thank um, Dick Nichols for also speaking to us. It's been a very packed program, so um, listeners, stay tuned for next week. All right, cheers, Fred. All right, thank you. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.